Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwarzdriver. On today's show, internet copyright and the future of the music industry. Regular listeners of this program may have heard our first episode on copyright recently with Mike Masnick, the uh, editor of Tech Dirt, um, where we discussed online copyright and uh, some of the big debates that are going on. You know, what responsibility do platforms like YouTube and Google have to remove infringing content? But how can we do that in a way that doesn't stifle free speech or disrupt the internet economy? There are a lot of competing interests here. And what I wanted to get a different perspective than the one I got last time. So joining me to discuss this important topic is Stephen Marks, Chief of Digital Business and General Counsel for the Recording Industry Association of America that is better known as RIAA. Stephen, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me. So to start off, who are the members of RIAA? The members of RIAA are hundreds of record labels, uh, including the major recorded companies and uh, the labels that, that they work with and distribute. And before we get into all the various copyright disputes, what exactly is the state of the music industry today? So the state of the industry is uh, good in that we have seen last year for the first time in a very long time uh, growth in the industry. So if we just kind of rewind a little bit uh, for some context, the industry today is about half of what it was in terms of total revenues uh, back in 1999. So you've had this steady decline for about 15 years, about five years or, uh, or so ago, uh, revenues flattened. And then just in the last two years, and especially in 2016, we saw some real growth in the industry. And that's been mainly from uh, streaming and in particular paid subscriptions from streaming. And what do you see as the reason for that decline? Is it as simple as just saying that the internet came along and that just hit your revenues or is it something more? I think it's a number of different things. I mean, clearly the internet was part of it and the way that people consume music was different. Um, so you had an album world going to a singles world. You also had a tremendous amount of piracy 15 years ago when Napster came along and you know the, the Napster progeny like Grokster and Kazaa uh, after that. And so you had a lot of things happening at, at one time that were you know very disruptive uh, to the industry. Uh, and so you had this very kind of you know, pretty rapid decline. I mean, you don't often see for an industry as mature as, as the recording industry to have that kind of decline over essentially a decade. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, that was those reasons. Uh, you know, piracy was, was the biggest one, obviously, but the way people consume music, uh, you know, was part of it as well. And you could argue that piracy was kind of the precursor to streaming in many ways. I mean, from a consumer perspective, they might feel bad for some of the artists they like that maybe, you know, 20 years ago they could have made more money or that in 1999 things were much better for RIAA members. But consumers might also look back to a time when they had to stand in line at a, a CD store to purchase a $20 CD that maybe had 12 songs on it. You do that several times a year and you're already looking at a very expensive enterprise to consume music. Um, you could, of course, listen to the radio, but that's still an option today. So at the same time, maybe that... Uh, the recording industry has lost half its revenue. It seems like consumers have more options than they've ever had before, and the benefit to the consumer is so great. So uh, why should consumers feel bad about this? 
Oh, I, I think that consumers do have more choice today than they've ever had, and that's a good thing. Uh, I think the industry is abra- embracing that. If, if you look, for example, at how the industry has evolved uh, over that time without focusing specifically on the revenues, uh, we are now nearly 80% digital. That's by far more than any other content uh, industry out there. And so like newspapers news, or books. Yeah. yeah, Newspapers, books, but also games. I mean, right. even things that people think of as digital, uh, we're, we're well ahead of those. And, and that's because the industry has wanted to meet consumer demand. Uh, streaming services have actually been around for a very long time. Uh, it's just more recently that they've become... Uh, something that that consumers have have become aware of in a in a mass market way and have begun to adopt. And at the same time that we've seen these massive changes in the marketplace, there has been a very long and bitter policy debate about the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, specifically Section 512, which we talked about on the last show uh, with Mike Masnick, where this is essentially intended to protect service providers like YouTube or like Google from financial liability when a third party, i.e. a user, violates the copyright protections of a given work. I mean, that could be uh, posting a song that you downloaded on YouTube and you're not supposed to be doing that, or it could even be someone taking a phone video of their television while watching an NFL game. I mean, we've seen anyone who uses the internet has seen things pop up and then sometimes they disappear and maybe there's a little message that says copyright violation. But the the purpose of this law that was passed in 1998 was to try to strike a balance. And in your view, did they strike a right balance? And is is the DMCA still relevant or does it need to be updated to uh, adapt to the marketplace? So I think the way I would answer that is is you have to look both at what was intended at the time and what has happened with the law in terms of the way it's been interpreted by courts, the way service providers uh, uh, like YouTube and others that weren't around then are now operating under the safe harbor. And those are two very different things in, in our mind. If you, uh, you know, if you go back to 1998, the intent at the time was to create a, a balance where each side, content and you know these platforms, had a certain amount of responsibility to address uh, you know, piracy or, or illegal use of the networks. Now, you have to keep in mind that back in 1998, the platforms or the, or the companies that were around at that time were Prodigy, MCI, uh, you know, Bell South, um, Netscape, bulletin boards. I mean, these are, <laughs> these are the companies that were at the table and that, their businesses were the ones that were uh, being addressed, you know, in terms of figuring out this right balance. So now, the lens that Congress was using to write the legislation was very much a current lens not necessarily forward-looking in your view? Exactly. And so you had, you know, the one thing about those services, they were either traditional ISPs or very passive services, you know, a bulletin board, somebody like just putting a, uh, you know, something up and there's no real interaction with the content, for example, by the bulletin board operator. And if you look at legislative history, there's, you know, a lot of legislative history talking about, uh, how this was this was about passive acts versus things that are more active, 
Now, and is the distinction there essentially a passive act is like someone has a song and they just throw it up on some GeoCities website maybe and there's not really a business model, there's not much user interaction. This this predates the web 2.0 revolution of things like Facebook, YouTube, where users are starting to generate the content, not the owner of the site, whereas a more active situation is what we currently see where you have content creators, you have platforms, you have uh, trade associations and everyone's kind of active in a marketplace that is functioning in a very at a very high level even if you don't like the way it's functioning right yeah i i think what's happened is that you know there are a few things the provisions of the dmca included both which kinds of service providers would be eligible for the safe harbors and and you know kind of figuring out and striking this balance uh, that was a pretty narrow group at the time, like the companies I was just, uh, you know, listing. And that has become much broader, obviously, because you've got companies like YouTube that are, uh, you know, operating under claiming protection under the, the safe harbor. So, you know, that's one thing that's happened. And then at the same time, when you look at the substantive provisions about how this balance was supposed to be struck, there were a number of things like, red flag knowledge, um, representative lists. These, are, these were all things that were in there. So, for example, when uh, a company uh, that was, you know, one of these companies that wanted to operate or, or, or claim protection under the safe harbor, um, if they had red flag knowledge, meaning they had, you know, enough knowledge, maybe not actual knowledge, but different from actual knowledge, um, enough information to know that there was a lot of infringement going on, they were supposed to take certain actions. Well, what's happened is, just to use that one as an example, is that the courts have required that uh, they, they have knowledge of something very specific, and literally the very specific infringement. So being aware of a lot of facts and circumstances and knowing, having enough knowledge where you know, hey, I know there's a lot of infringement out there, is not enough. You have to know that the specific infringement, the specific URL is there. Now, in our mind, that's not, that was not the intent uh, when, when the statute was drawn up. Now, regardless of whether that is the intent, and you make a compelling point, many people would say that the bill, however intentional or not, was forward-looking because you passed this bill, and we've seen the development of these platforms, and we've seen a lot of speech happening on the internet, and we also see options like publishing on Amazon or publishing your work on a third-party platform, which might have been cheaper than going through one of the labels that your association represents in the past, which many have criticized as gatekeepers. So without DMCA, however problematic, do you think this ecosystem would have developed the way it did? And maybe there's good reason for requiring actual knowledge instead of just a general knowledge because... Um, you want to make sure that whatever content you're removing from the internet, given free speech concerns, is actually infringing. And many on the platform side would argue that if you reduce that standard to essentially like you just have to know that piracy exists in the world and that requires you to go clean up your platform, that is a much lower standard and that would bias the platform towards removing things that are that could be potentially infringing, even if they're not, and then you create a chilling effect on free speech. I mean, that's what they would say. Yeah, I think I think we have to distinguish between platforms that have developed and are flourishing um, that are not relying on the safe harbors, or 
uh, and those that are. I mean, remember, uh, you know, a lot of the services and a lot of the things that you just mentioned, they're not really re- they're not relying on the safe harbors to exist. Um, uh, things like you know tools for artists to be able to get their content online without having a, a, a major or an indie label or you know any label at all. That's very different from what we're talking about in terms of the DMCA safe harbors. The, the, the DMCA safe harbors were specifically about a shared responsibility in dealing with infringement that exists on a platform. And the balance, there, there really is no balance there. And I would agree with you that, you know, just being aware of that their piracy exists generally is not enough. I don't think anybody would, would, would assert that that's it. But when you have knowledge of that there is infringement going on on your platform uh, that was supposed to create an obligation to take some steps to address it and that's that's what we don't see and the effect of this has been to uh, you know distort uh, the marketplace so if we just go back to streaming which is really the the most important uh, you know, development and revenue stream for the industry right now. And, and it's important to keep in mind that um, while streaming is doing very well and driving growth for the first time in the industry, other revenue streams are continuing to fall. So, uh, you know, physical CDs are, are continuing to decline. Uh, digital albums and, and uh, singles are continuing to decline. So it's, it's a very kind of fragile... Um, recovery, so to speak, because it's very centered on just one revenue stream. And then when you look at that revenue stream, you've got services that are essentially competing with it that are operating under the safe harbors. What happens generally as a result of the safe harbors is that you you don't have the kind of um, market negotiation that would otherwise occur. So for example, if YouTube was not relying on the safe harbors and sat down to, to, to get a license. You would expect that all of the things that you just said would be part of that discussion. Look, we're not exactly the same thing. It's not like using Spotify. And the, the, the parties would come up with an appropriate market-based uh, rate or, or uh, agreement or solution You know that, that put YouTube where it belonged kind of in the overall uh, scheme of things in terms of the rate rates it's playing. The problem is, is that the industry does not, and individual companies obviously negotiate for these rates, they don't really have the opportunity to have that kind of conversation because the conversation instead goes something like, um, you know, you can, we're willing to pay X. Label might say, I think that's too low. It's much lower than what, you know, others pay. It's just not what I would think is a market rate. And then YouTube or another service in that position is able to say, well, okay, if you don't want that, then just send us notice and notices and we'll take down the content. Knowing full well that that's not really a practical solution because at any given time, because of what we were just discussing about the way the DMCA works, at any given time, you can, you're able to find a recording of that label that's up there. 
because it's, so you, a, it's a game of whack-a-mole. Yeah, and you're so, getting at that problem, which is just essentially that any it, you can send a notice for this, then it gets taken down, but then it pops up again. So that's been a problem on both sides. And you can argue that even requiring the platform to do more won't necessarily solve that problem. I mean, like you said, there was supposed to be this shared responsibility where content owners do some policing of the internet to see where their stuff ends up, and then maybe the platforms do some themselves. I mean, what could be changed from a policy perspective, in your view, to change the whack-a-mole problem? Because it seems fairly intractable at the moment. Yeah, I, I think there's a, a policy solution, and then there's you know a business uh, solution. I mean, the policy solution obviously would be to uh, kind of restore the balance that was supposed to exist at the time that the DMCA was passed. You know, yeah, and in comparison to newspapers, which are now have many similar complaints as the recording industry, it seems like uh, in many ways the music industry adapted to the digital revolution a lot quicker than some other areas like books, etc. Um, there's a lot of discussion in the industry about data. Um, and it might be difficult to properly measure the industry if we don't have the right measures on tour revenues and uh, the you know merchandise and streaming revenues and things like that and who's getting paid for what. So how important is data, having accurate data in any type of policy discussion or just in terms of making your businesses viable? And what, what are we talking about when we say we need a good data set? So I think most of the discussions in the industry on data have focused on having authoritative uh, data for who owns the content, you know, who owns the recording um, and who owns the underlying musical composition. And in in the composition world in particular, that's not always an easy thing because you have multiple owners who own different shares of the song. So, uh, you know, just to give you a couple of examples of why that happens, you, you, you have a, a, you know, somebody in the studio, people, other, other writers or artists stop by the studio or invited in to help lay down tracks and they get songwriting credit because they're adding something to the composition right. itself. It's like a share in a company. Exactly. The, it, it, another, another thing that, that is becoming more routine is that writers will write a piece of something, pass it along to another writer as you know a file. They're not literally in the same room, but they're accomplishing the same thing. And at the end of the day, you may have five or ten or more writers who've contributed to that composition that's then, uh, you know, becomes uh, part of the recording. And so what, what often happens is that at the time that the, uh, the music is delivered uh, by the artist and it's ready for release, the writers have not worked out um, all, who, who all the owners are and what shares they get. Because the shares are not you know, it's not like, oh, there are five writers and we each get 20%. It may be one gets 50%, one gets 20%, one gets 2%. There are all kinds of, the numbers are all over the place, and that's something that's just worked out as it should be between or among those, those songwriters. The, the problem is, is that when you're ready to release something, and when you, especially if you're a, a, a streaming company that's offering 40 million songs, and those songs are are getting streamed, for example, and you're, re- you're you've got money coming in, and you're ready to pay it out. 
you may not know who to pay. And whose responsibility is it to create that data set? I mean, that this sounds like a problem that the music industry has to figure out because how is a platform like Spotify or YouTube, to keep bringing that up, going to know who to pay? Right. I, I, I think that, that, that you are right, that it makes a lot of sense for the owners of the content to be able to say, hey, Here's what here's the ownership information. Yeah, here's the percentages. And, Everyone gets this. Right. Go and, ahead. And 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 this is this is where you can find the authoritative list. Because what's happening is that companies that need to pay out are starting to develop their own databases. And what you have is this redundancy of databases, you know, across the industry. None of them are completely accurate. Uh, and it costs a lot of money for everybody to put together different databases. Why can't we just work together, so guys? That's, <laughs> that, so there, there, there are discussions now to uh, among labels and publishers and others to address this issue. Um, but again, it's it's not it, it's something that is um, uh, something that needs to be done together, both in terms of of figuring out. Um, how best to make that available, uh, and also the funding of something like that, um, because you know at, at at the end of the day, the the licenses that are required, for example, for the compositions, you, you you're not supposed to be able to use it until you know you've attained the license and you know you know who the owners are and things. So it's a very complicated problem, but it's one that the industry is very focused on trying to uh, address. Um, given the, the the importance of having the right kind of data, and also in just eliminating, if you think about those redundancies that that I mentioned, that's a lot of money that's being created. And um, so, if I'm if I'm a, a digital music provider, for example, a subscription streaming service, if I don't have to develop that my own database to figure this out. Maybe you can pay the artists a little I can, bit more. Exactly. I can spend <laughs> money to market my service. I can spend money, you know, you know, let's, let's say it's, uh, you know, $5 of every hundred that, that I, I, on my P and L and the costs, I now have five more dollars to market my, my product, develop the product, pay more to creators. I mean, it's, it really is uh, beneficial to everybody. Yeah, I think we've identified two areas of waste that maybe people on any side of the copyright debate could agree is a waste of money. One is artists or companies or whoever just having to spend all their time sending notices. I mean, that's just terrible. That's not exciting. It's not intellectual. It's not creative. It's just lawyerly. It's stupid. Um, but it has to happen under the current system for a variety of reasons, good and bad. Then there's this other wastefulness of just having duplicative data and not using the right sets. Now, the internet giants have come under a lot of fire recently. You've got people like Jonathan Taplin calling them monopolists. You have people doing interviews with The Economist saying that no one's ever going to have an incentive to create anymore because they're just going to gobble up all the revenue and we're just going to see less music and less content. And even though we're in a golden age of television, this is only temporary. Are you optimistic given the marketplace? I mean, do you think that we're headed for a parade of horribles or is is the industry, the creative people in it, is it adaptive enough to just survive whatever? I mean, whatever happens, maybe the internet companies continue to grow and they continue to gain market share and market power and people continue to yell at them and call them monopolists, but nothing changes legislatively. I mean, given the situation, are you a optimist about the future of music or a pessimist or something in between? Well, I'm an optimist. I mean, I, I, I think that there are going, you know, just if you look at this little snapshot in the last 10 years and 
you know, you started off by saying, well, you, you used to have the choice of listening to uh, uh, your local radio station or buying a CD, and you look at what, what is available now, you have this whole continuum of choices for consumers, you know, starting with the, the same listening to radio, but then listening to internet radio stations, listening to customized uh, uh, offerings. Podcasts. Uh, podcasts, <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. Um, and... Um, so there are many subscription streaming choices you still can buy. You can buy a single. You can buy an album. You can do. There are a lot of things that you can do now that that you weren't able to. And I think that that I'm optimistic about that continuing to happen. At the same time, I do think. And and getting back to five twelve, this is uh, I think for us uh, one of the ironies of the situation is that as a result of what what's happened with the safe harbors you have getting back to you know the conversation we were having before about people coming to the table and talking well when you don't have the incentive to come and and, and figure out the problem part of that is you're you're essentially an an entrenched um, incumbent in that in in the in the uh, business world uh, of music at that point and because the current system is fine like from your perspective bottom line as a company if you're YouTube maybe you just look at it and you say you know what it's fine the way it is now and and if you're a competitor if you're a startup and you have a different a little bit of a different twist how are you going to break in to 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 this um, when you've got companies that continue to rely on these outdated laws in a way that stifles innovation instead of because they're they're essentially the entrenched incumbents who who want to continue uh, uh, you know with with all the advantages that they get from this 20 year old law that's not a good thing for uh, you know bringing all those new kinds of of uh, services and ways to listen to music and everything else to uh, to consumers. Well, I don't have to tell listeners about how important music is and why it's important for culture and just everything else. And it's one of those few things in the world that truly is universal and it brings people together. So regardless of where you stand on this issue, it's a very important debate. Uh, I'm thanking you for listening to this show. I encourage you to go listen to the other one and see maybe where you fall on the spectrum and maybe uh, when Congress starts picking this up again, if, if ever, uh, you'll have something to tell your congressman about how to maybe find a bipartisan solution to what seems like an intractable problem. But this has been a very valuable discussion. I'd like to thank Stephen Marks, Chief of Digital Business and General Counsel for the Recording Industry Association of America, or RIAA. Stephen, thanks for joining. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Let us know what you think of the show. Send us an email at mediatechfreedom.org. Find this podcast in the iTunes store. Please leave us a review because we'll help others find the show. Thanks for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.